it seems to me appropriate and necessary that again uh, and again we remind ourselves of the importance of lament. We need to lament as much as we need to rejoice. And we need to know how to lament. And I think that a lot of Christians simply don't. And we need to put that right. But the circumstances of this um, has been brought to us um, by the Walters family and their circumstances. Um, they have a, a statement which I'm going to read out. You're going to have to bear with me on this. It's, uh, it's powerful stuff. So for those who aren't completely familiar with the situation, this will get you up to speed with what happened. And then there's a few thoughts uh, and words they have afterwards. So this, is, this next thing I'm reading out, this is not me. This is, this is Brian and Eva. And, and uh, this is what they say. We found out we were pregnant in October 2018. Having three boys already, we decided to wait to find out the gender of the baby until birth. Everything seemed fine for the first several months, but in February, at our 20-week ultrasound, they couldn't find the stomach on the baby. We were referred to a specialist, and after looking at everything, it appeared that our baby probably had Down syndrome, and also a problem with the esophagus connection to the stomach. While this was very challenging news at first, we devoted the next months to researching and preparing for a special needs baby. Over time, we really embraced the idea of having a special needs baby, excited to see what lessons God would teach our family. At about 27 weeks of pregnancy, Neva began to develop extra fluid around the baby as a complication of the esophagus problems. This was not unexpected, and the doctors continued to reassure us that everything else looked fine. They said that the best thing was just to try and keep the baby in as long as possible, as excess fluid could lead to an early birth and extra complications. However, on Sunday the 26th, when Neva was seven and a half months pregnant, Neva noticed a lack of movement from the baby. When we went in to get check, checked, the tragic discovery was made that the baby was dead. With broken hearts, we went home to tell the boys so that they could say goodbye to the baby they had been so eagerly waiting to meet. Then we returned to the hospital and Neva was induced for delivery. Early, early Tuesday morning, May the 28th, the baby was born and we found that we had had a fourth son. We named him Tommy Emerson Walters after two of his great-grandfathers. He was 3.9 pounds and 17 inches long. We held him for several hours before we had to leave the hospital with empty arms. The cause of his death is still uncertain, but the prevalent theory is a twisted umbilical cord. We so wish we could have met our sweet baby in person and introduced him to all of you, our dear church family. Though he had such a short life, he has forever impacted our hearts and our lives. We know that he is with Jesus and we await with great hope that day when we will be reunited. During the few hours we got to hold Tommy, we were at, loss for, at a loss for words. Neva's brother sent us a liturgy, a friend of his wrote, which felt so completely appropriate at the time. This is it. Father God, I am broken and poured out. There is nothing left inside me. For these past moments, my heart expanded in the goodness of your creation, in the promise of the child within. Yet now that promise is gone. And I mourn the loss of a future with this, your precious little one. I know you weep with me now, for you are a father who has felt the pain of loss. You give good things to your children. And the dreams and desires for this tiny baby were given by you to grow my heart with your affection. And to align our hearts together in the beauty of your common grace. 
Yet these dreams and these desires are now gone. And the brokenness of this world weighs heavily on my shattered soul. My arms are empty. Hold my child in your arms, Lord Jesus. Jesus, though I knew my child but a short while, you have been intimately acquainted with them since before the dawn of time. In perfect union with the Father and the Spirit, you knew the moment this life would intersect with mine. Your plans for this child were not my plans. But I rest in your purpose for my brokenness, even when I don't understand it. As Lazarus rested in the bosom of Abraham, keep my child until the brokenness of this world is healed forevermore. Holy Spirit, make known to me your goodness, for in this time there is nothing in me that is not despair. My intellect tells me you are good, but my empty arms tell my heart another story. Unite the two together. Heal this broken vessel so that in turn my loss would pour into the lives of others. Amen. Man, that's powerful. That's a, that's a good, good liturgy. That's a good psalm. That's a good lament. This world is a broken place. Romans chapter 8, Paul says this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, I'm going to be going through lots of passages this morning. It's not my normal way. I'm not very comfortable doing it, to be honest with you. But we've got to start here in Romans 8. I want to just repeat what I just said here, what he just said here, which is this. We, that's us, believers, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. We groan inwardly. We are Christians. If we have the Holy Spirit, there are certain things that are true of us. We, we should rejoice because we've been given such rich blessings by God. We should rejoice in the salvation that we have. These, these should be true of us all as Christians. But the call to lament is as much in our hearts as the call to rejoice. We as Christians groan inwardly because of the fallen state of creation, because of sin in this world, because things in life don't go as we plan, because there's not always in this life, in, on this earth, a happy ending. There will always be lament. And in conjunction with Romans 8, and I won't turn there because I've got so much to turn to today, but you'll be familiar, most of you, I hope, those of you who've been here a while, I taught through Ephesians before, and Ephesians chapter 4 speaks about the maturing of the church. And, and I want to emphasize that phrase, the maturing of the church. There is nowhere in the Bible 
that implies that we can mature independently, alone. Paul specifically speaks about how we mature through the giftings that we have being ministered one to another. The, the pastor teacher equips the saints to the work of ministry, and as you minister, you grow, and as you are, you are ministered to, you grow. And we grow and we mature and we change together through our interactions with one another. Now, when you combine Romans 8 and Ephesians 4, you see that there has to be a place in the church for communal lament. Friends, let me just say this clearly. I think the church has dropped the ball on this one. We are lousy. Not us, Calvary Baptists. I think we're better than most. I think we do a fairly good job. But the church, broadly speaking, has done atrociously. The evangelical church, the Bible-believing church, the Bible-teaching church has dropped the ball on the issue of lament. All of the songs that we sing are songs of rejoicing. Let's rejoice together. Let's worship together. The church has turned in its worship from recounting the glories of God and the attributes that he has to talking about how we feel. We've relegated worship from being about God to being about man. And so when people come to church with sadness, when people come to church in, in the shadow of tragedy and trials and death and defeat, they're supposed to sing songs about how happy they are and how wonderful everything is. And they feel out of place because they are. A church is a place for rejoicing and a church is a place for lamenting. And there is no contradiction within that. And so this morning, I'm going to teach you the alphabet. I'm going to teach you the alphabet. A few of you are getting worried at this point. No need. Years ago, a couple of friends of mine wrote a book on the deity of Christ. And in that book, they had the analogy, hands. And it's a really convenient, I like an, uh, um, sorry, an acronym. Did I say analogy? Acronym. The acronym HANDS. And I like acronyms because I'm a simple person and they help me. You might be simple too and they might help you as well. But they had the acronym HANDS for the deity of Christ. And I was bumped into some um, Mormon missionaries walking past after church last Sunday night. And I was equipped because I had a hand ready. So I was able to talk to them about the fact that Jesus received the honor that the Father receives, that he has the attributes that the Father has, that he is called the names that the Father is called, that he does the deeds that the Father does, and he holds the seat of authority that the Father has. Therefore, he is God as much as the Father is God. Hands. It's convenient, isn't it? So this morning, I'm going to teach you the alphabet of lament. And for those of you on Tuesday nights who think you've heard it, we're going to go all the way to F. So, we're going to start in Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is the most miserable book, uh, chapter in the entire Bible. It is the psalm without the happy ending. It is the psalm that ends in, starts in gloom and ends in gloom. And it is a psalm that the church desperately needs to hear. And it's going to frustrate me this morning, by the way, just as we skim through various psalms and not really deal with it verse by verse in depth. But it is the need for what we have today. But Psalm 88 says this, O Lord, Yahweh, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol, that's death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. He's saying he's a dead person. He might as well be dead. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You've caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so I cannot escape. 
My eyes grow dim through sorrow every day I call upon you, Yahweh. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in your grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? This is a plea to say, it doesn't look good on you when I'm in the place of death and darkness. Lift me up so that I can rejoice. But Lord, I cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Yahweh, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. That is, without a doubt, the most miserable of all Psalms. Now consider this. Psalms were songs sung corporately. Can you imagine that being sung? We all know pain. We suffer loss. We're tormented by memories of better days, of, as we read about in that liturgy, the hopes and dreams shattered. We're attacked by enemies. We're confronted by our own sin. We endure death, sickness, loss, breakup of relationships, broken marriages, pain in every way that you can possibly imagine. These things are isolated. They're not always here for a season and gone. Look at verse 15. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. This is, a, this is somebody, presumably later on in life, saying, all I've known is misery since I was a young person, since I was a teenager, essentially. That's all I've known, is affliction and misery. He says, you've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. He lost his best friend and he lost his wife. He suffered and he cries out, and he cries out, and he cries out, and he cries out, and God hides his face. The A of the alphabet of lament is acknowledgement. If you want to go to a church where you have to put on your best Sunday face, this is not the place for you. If you want to go to a church where you're not distracted by people who weep and mourn, who are not distracted by broken people dealing with their brokenness, this is not the church for you. There needs to be an authentic, that's another A, acknowledgement of our circumstances. When it feels like God has deserted you, then it is not a sin to say, it feels like God's deserted me. And if you think that you are somehow doing someone a service by coming alongside them and saying, oh, don't say stuff like that, that's not very good, then you are deeply mistaken. Acknowledgement is everywhere in the Psalms. The Psalms are littered with the acknowledgement of people saying, this is how I feel right now. This is the situation. This is my woe. This is my pain. This is my tears. These are my hopes shattered before me. This is the love that I've lost. This is the circumstances that I would do anything to escape from. Here they are. And even Christ on the cross, he quotes from that glorious lament psalm, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you've never prayed that prayer, it doesn't make you better than Jesus. 
it makes you less honest. There is a place, a glorious place, for authentic acknowledgement of our pain and our hurt and our suffering. And you know what? Church, one of the reasons that this is lost in the church is because people don't make hurting people feel comfortable. People don't let people acknowledge. They don't let them be in pain. They don't let them hurt. There's plenty of cults you can go to if you want to have the buttoned up, put on a smile, everything's okay Sunday look. But that is not what Christianity is about. We are broken people and you know what? Maybe you don't have a, some amazing gift. Maybe you're not called to be an evangelist or a teacher. Maybe you've got the gift of comfort. Maybe you're the person who when someone turns up to church on a Sunday and all they want to do is just bawl their eyes out. They're praying for your shoulders to be there so the tears can fall on those shoulders. And we've all got those people, haven't we? I know I have. I know when I have bad Saturdays, I know that when I'm dreading Sunday, I know that when the weight is, of the world is upon me and I want to be anywhere but here, I am praying that certain people are here so that I can see them, see their smile, put my arms around them. Because that is family, friends. And when we have an environment where acknowledgement of our pain and our brokenness is not allowed, is not valid, is not welcome, then what happens is that people hide away. Do not hide away. There is no place, it is not a biblical concept to be pretending that everything is okay when it's not okay. That is not a biblical concept. It may be a religious concept, but it's not a biblical one. And we need to have an environment where people feel comfortable to acknowledge. And guys, and the other reason I think that sometimes we don't acknowledge our brokenness, let's be frank, it's our own pride. We don't want to go through that whole mess. We just want to lock things away. We don't want to be uncomfortable. And, and, and we, don't want to we don't want to trouble you with you praying for us or anything like that. Oh gosh, please don't pray for us. Do you know what? You've been praying for this for the last year and I'm still sick and I, just, I, can, I, can, I can feel the eyes rolling back in your head. I, I won't ask you to pray for it again. Sometimes that's just pride. Sometimes we need to just humble ourselves and say, church family, I'm a mess. I need your help. Pray for me. Help me. Love me. It has to begin with A, acknowledgement. And Psalm 88 is just a, an outstanding example of that acknowledgement. And uh, another one is, is the one that I had David read for us this morning. You can flick back to Psalm 42. I've said it before and I, I always feel guilty when I do so, but I'm not a fan of the song. You know the song, don't you? As the deer pants for the water. You know why I don't like it? Because it makes it song. It's like, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul, so my soul longs after you. And then the chorus, you alone are my heart's desire. And I long to worship you. And when you, when you look at that song isolated from the psalm, it, it's a song about, I really, really want you, Jesus. No, I really want you. Oh, I really love you. And it's all about the emotions of really loving and wanting and needing Jesus, which is okay, I suppose. That's not what the psalm's about, not even remotely. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living, uh, for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude keeping festival. Do you know what it is to look back on a previous time and look back on a time when you were happy and to say, I vaguely remember what that feels like. That's what he's talking about here. He's looking back to a time when he could rejoice, but now my tears are my food day and night. That's a raw acknowledgement. And he says in that context, that, that's why he's saying, I, I long for you, God. Where are you? You've left me. You've forsaken me. And then he says, 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The refrain in Psalm 42, which should be in the song, they kind of missed one on that one, but why are you cast down, O my soul? That is a twofold question with two answers. Question number one is this, because of the acknowledgement. This is why my heart is cast down, because, because of this death, because of this loss, because of this sickness, because of this hurt, because of this betrayal. That's why my, my heart is cast down. But then the twist is in the question as well, which is, but, but why, am, why is that casting me down? My, my hope is in God. And, and so that phrase takes us from the A to the B. And, and by the way, you don't see these sequentially in the Psalms, although occasionally, but all the elements are here in Lament Psalms. The A is acknowledge and the B is behold. Behold our God, as we sing, seated on the throne. Behold God. Remember who he is. Remember his attributes. Remember his kindness. Remember his mercy. Remember his love. Remember his, his sovereignty, his power, his might, his omniscience. Remember the love that he has for us. And you know where you see those attributes most clearly laid out? Of course you do. It's on the cross. That's where, in the midst of the deepest and greatest darkness that this world has ever known, in the midst of the grossest sin that has ever been committed, right in the middle of it, not separate from it, not, not alongside it, but right in the middle of it, we have the greatest glory going to God. We see the greatest love expressed. We have the greatest reason to hope and to rejoice. You see... There's two great errors that we can make with, our, with regards to acknowledgement. One, as I've said, is that we don't do it, that we bottle it up. The, the stiff British upper lip, as we say, back home. The stoic sort of, yeah, que sera, sera, nonsense, which breaks and destroys so many people because they don't feel able to express what they really feel. But you see, the other problem is this is that we stay and we remain in the place of acknowledgement and we never behold God. Now, if you're counselling someone, which we should all be doing, ministering to people who are in pain, when we come alongside people, this isn't a sequential thing. It's not like we say, okay, so your time of acknowledgement is up now, done. Okay, now let's give you some scriptures and get this thing over and done with. That's what Job's friends did, wasn't it? I mean, I tell you, they are a model for ministry for the first three days. They just sit alongside him and he's there and he's weeping and they're just alongside him and they're there for him. What good friends. And then they open their mouths. Big mistake. And so we have a, a need, I think, where we acknowledge and then we behold God. And then we're overwhelmed again. So what do we do? We acknowledge again. And then when we feel able to, we, we behold God. And, and I think that this, there's a swinging here. This, and you see this in the Psalms. He, here he is in Psalm 42, hoping God, for again I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. And then my soul is cast down within me. And, and again, you'll see this in the Psalms, where they will turn to God and then turn back to acknowledgement. And turn to God and then turn back to acknowledgement. This is not a falling back. This is not a slipping back. This is not a backsliding of any sort. This is not a, we did acknowledgement, now you've beheld God, why are you going back to your problems again? There needs to be that time of grieving, of mourning, of, of struggling. In the case of Psalm 88, it may go on for the bulk of your lifetime. There are people who have medical conditions where they are physically in pain for the majority of their lives. And they keep crying out, and they keep crying out, and they keep crying out. Don't you dare tell them to stop acknowledging their pain. That is not Christ-like. And that's not okay. So we behold God. 
And, and, and let me tell you, one, moving from A to B, let me tell you one of the ways that we see those two things combined that might be a little surprising to you. When it says in the Psalms, and I'm just flicking back to Psalm 88 because it's a great example of this, but when it says in the Psalm, in Psalm 88, um, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. Your wrath has swept over me. I suffer your terrors. Again and again in the Psalms, we see blame put on God. Again and again in laments, we see blame put on God. And I tell you what, a lot of Christians struggle with that. Lamentations 3, you were like a bear, like a lion waiting to pounce on me. How can he say those things about God? That's just terrible. No, it's not. Let me tell you what it does. Is it acknowledges the suffering while at the same time beholding a sovereign God who has allowed it to happen. That's such an important thing for us to understand. That God is sovereign, he is in charge, he is in control of all things, and he allows it to happen. It doesn't mean that he desires it, it doesn't mean that he takes pleasure in it, it doesn't mean any of those things that people would try and say as an argument against God in the midst of suffering, but it does mean that he allows it. If your child dies, if you have cancer, if your marriage breaks up, if you suffer some sort of assault, God is still sovereign. He's still sovereign. Do I have answers? Not a lot. Not aside from the cross. Because no matter what sin you can think of, the, the, the shocking sin, the sin where you say, this is so bad and so evil and so wicked that how could God, if he's a loving God, allow this? Whatever sin that you can think of that is your, your worst of all possible sins, the worst of all possible things, it is not as bad, it is not as gross, it is not as sinful, it is not as terrible as taking the Son of God and scourging him, ripping the skin off his back to the point that he couldn't carry his own cross and crucifying him while mocking him and spitting on him. That the one who was creator was killed by the ones he created. I don't care what, what terrible sin you have to pull out from your sleeve and say, aha, a loving God wouldn't do this. That's the worst one right there. And there in the midst of it, what do we see? We see that God allowed it so that we would be able to be free from sin and to have fellowship with him and to enjoy him for all eternity, free from sin and all of its consequences and all of its death and all of its trials and all of its tears. That's a good thing. And if we can trust him with that sin, then though we might not understand, we trust him with all the others. And so the sovereignty of God and the acknowledgement of his sovereignty takes us from the acknowledgement of our pain and of our suffering to the beholding of God. This is who he is. This is what he's done. This is his character. And I will trust in him. That, by the way, is why in the Psalms you routinely see the phrase, uh, his steadfast love. Which of the Psalms is it? I didn't write it down because I was ticking to laments, but I think it's towards the end where we have the repetition. Yeah, 136. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, the God of gods. His steadfast love endures forever. And he just repeats the whole way through. One line, his steadfast love endures forever. Next line, his steadfast love endures forever. I remember they did a worship song of that once back when I was a young man. Boy, that used to annoy me. It was just so repetitive. Why are we going to say, his steadfast love, his, his love endures forever. That was the song. It was just, it went on and on. It was like, ah, oh, I just didn't get it. Now I get it. Now I get it. This goes on in your life. There's this trial. There's, his love is still there. He's a covenant-keeping God. He loves me. He can be trusted. I look at the cross. He can be trusted. This situation, he's a covenant-keeping God. He can be trusted. This has happened. I look at the cross. He can be trusted. And we just have to repeat it and remind ourselves again and again and again. This is who he is. So there's your A and your B. 
We acknowledge our pain. We acknowledge who he is. We behold our God. We behold his attributes, his character, his deeds. And then what do we do with C? We cry out. We cry out to him because he's the one. And this is where so many of the Psalms begin. Even Psalm 88 in all its misery begins with, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. That's just majestic. When you see that in the context of that psalm, is that not majestic? That somebody would lose their spouse, that would lose their best friend, would lose their health, would lose their sanity near enough, that would long for death, that would feel like a dead person, and they are still crying out to God who saved them. That's faith right there. I'm getting ahead of myself. So, we cry out to him. Psalm 42, again, was very similar. We cry out to him. Let's look at one more. Psalm 57. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I'll take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. You see that? You see B and C combined there, don't you? You see B and C combined where you see this sort of, I'm crying out to you because I can trust you. I'm crying out to you because you're the most high. I'm crying out to you because you're going to fulfill your purposes even in this. It's pointless having a God who is sovereign when you stay silent. As if somehow, okay, God's sovereign. Let's just see what he does. That, that is what we call, that's a, that's, a, that's a moderate form of hyper-Calvinism. This kind of idea that God's God, he's sovereign. We just kind of lay back and just see whatever he happens to do. And we have no interaction in that whole process. That is a nonsense. Let's turn to uh, 1 Peter. Just ju- jumping back to the New Testament briefly. First Peter. And chapter 5 and verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility to one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. You want to know why people who believe in a sovereign God don't cry out to that God? Do you want to know, to put it another way, why prayer lives get gaunt. You want to know why our prayers, even in times of trials, are often not as they should be? Pride. Pride. We just crack on and we just get things done and we see what happens and we do our best and on we go. And it's all about me, 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 me. It's pride. And God opposes the proud. And so he says in verse 6 of 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Mighty hand of God is reference to his power, to his might, to, his, to what he can do, to his omnipotence. Yes? And so we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of the God, so at the right time, at the proper time, he might exalt us. He might lift us up. We humble ourselves, God lifts us up. We lift ourselves up, God humbles us. And so how do we do that? How do we humble ourselves that one day he might lift us up? By casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Coming before God and saying, help me, is the most humble thing you can do. Because it acknowledges who he is. It acknowledges that he is the one. Even in Psalm 88, a guy who says, I have been tormented from my youth. And all he's known is that torment. And he's gone through trial after trial after trial. And what does he refer to God as? The God of my salvation. 
He cries out to the God of his salvation that he knows that even though he has not been saved from his circumstances, even though he's had to endure year after year after year of suffering, he knows that God is the only one who can save him. He's not turning to Baal. He's not turning to Molech. He's not turning to any of the other foreign gods. He is turning to Yahweh because he is the God of salvation. Isn't that powerful? That's who we cry out to. Because the behold goes to the crying out. When we see who he is, we have to cry out. And folks, sometimes that's one of the reasons that God allows trials into our lives. Because we don't cry out enough. And if we don't cry out, if we don't pray, we're proud. And when we lift ourselves up, God humbles us. So there's your ABC. Let's turn to Psalm 37 and we'll look at D. I'm going to do D, E and F real quickly and I'll probably stick in uh, Psalm 37 for the bulk of this. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For soon they will fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. So this is a situation where someone is obviously um, has enemies around them. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend, befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The D is found here in uh, the first half of verse 3. Do good. Do good. When life sucks, that is not an excuse to sin. It's always the way. When you see people who wander from the faith, people who turn away, what happens is... Maybe they don't acknowledge their pain and it builds up within them. Maybe they acknowledge but they don't go on to behold. Maybe they know who God is but they don't meditate on who he is and they don't cry out to him. Or maybe they do cry out to him and they finally give in. And they use it as an excuse to sin. In the midst of lament, in the midst of trial, do good. Do good things. Obey God. Serve him. And I like the fact that here it says also to dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. To dwell in the land in, in the context of this psalm, it comes at a time when the land has been promised to Israel, but the Israel is not enjoying the fruits of the promised land. They have the land, but it's not as good as it could have been, or it had been, or it will be. It was somehow imperfect. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to suggest this. That those of you who are married, you're married to somebody who's imperfect. Just, just going to go out on a limb here, okay? Your husband's imperfect. Your wife's imperfect. Your friends are imperfect. Your job's not perfect. Your circumstances of life are not what you want them to be. There's always something you want that you don't have. Something that hurts, you want taken away. Life is not the land that you would have given yourself. But it's the land that God's given you. Dwell in the land. Do good. Be there in the land that God's given you and just do what's right. Be faithful. Befriend faithfulness. The... the, the, the the ESV has gone for a translation where it talks about us being faithful. In the original, it's got a double meaning. It could mean, it, it probably means both us being faithful while we're in the land, and while we're in the land, us embracing God's faithfulness to us, even in the midst of imperfections. I'm here in this land. It's not how I anticipated my life would go. It's not what I wanted. It's not, it's not my choice. But God's faithful, and I'll be faithful to him. I'll do good. So in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our crying out, 
we keep doing what's right. Suffering is not an excuse for sin. And that leads us then to um, the E and the F, which I'll put together. Enduring faithfulness. Whether it's the lifetime suffering of Psalm 88, whether here in Psalm 37, it is this importance of waiting on God, trusting in God. Waiting on God is a grossly misunderstood thing in much of the church. There, in much of the charismatic wing of the church, waiting on God means, I don't know what I need to know, so I'm just going to wait on God and let him tell me what I need to know. You know, like we're going to go, um, and empty our minds, and God will suddenly, boom, give us an idea, you know. That's not how it works, and that is not waiting on God. Waiting on God is not not having an answer and waiting for an answer. Waiting on God is having an answer because God has already spoken. I know who God is. He is sovereign. He is good. He is kind. He is merciful. And right now, my life is the capital of Sucksville. I'm in misery right now, but God is still God. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wait. And I'm going to trust and I'm going to take comfort in who he is. I'm going to keep being faithful like he's been faithful to me. And I'm just going to endure and I'm going to go on and I'm going to go on and I'm going to go on. And I'm going to wait. And then as we wait and as we trust, that is not a passive thing. It is not something where we're like, oh, just kind of wait on God and see what he does. No, 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 no. Waiting is active. Waiting is about us saying beholding I know who he is crying out Lord come and rescue me doing good I'm going to trust him and I'm going to live in faithfulness even though this is going on that is enduring faithfulness and so in closing I want to say just two things because it's communion Sunday and we're going to be in another psalm as we take communion together I just want to say two things to finish Firstly, just as easily as I could when I met the Mormon missionaries last weekend, I had a hand, and so I could remember the acronym hand, hands. And I knew those things, the honor, the attributes, the, need, uh, the, the names, the deeds, and the seat. I hope that this acronym for you, this alphabet for you, is something that you can remember, you can take away. I hope it's something that you memorize. Acknowledge. Behold, cry out, do good, enduring faithfulness. Because you know what? You need to know it now so that when that phone call comes, when that incident happens, when, when something happens that just turns your life upside down in a completely unexpected way, I want you to be ready. Let me confess this to you. This message this thinking has been born out of tremendous suffering. And when suffering came into my life, I was not prepared. I knew it, but I wasn't prepared. This, my friends, this is the sermon I wish someone had preached to me before. And I... I hope and I pray it's a sermon that will help and bless you. The second and final thing I want to say is I want to say a thank you to the Walters family. They have been, they have been a model of this. And we as a church, I think, have done as well as we knew how, as well as we could, to try and model this corporately. But I... I feel humbled by this family and how they've embraced God in the midst of this trial. And what a, what a ministry to us they have been. What a ministry they have been to us. Because if anyone else goes through anything like this, 
you have a model, you have an example, you have people you can go to who've walked through it before you. And they have provided a service to this church by being faithful to God in the midst of this trial. And we thank you. We, we truly thank you. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge our pain. Each one of us today, as we've sat and we've listened, we've been thinking about us, what it is in our hearts, what our pain is, what it is that we have lost, what we suffered through, what we struggle with. Lord, may we not cover it up. May we not hide it. May we not pretend it's not real. But may we acknowledge it and may we acknowledge who you are. May we behold you. May we remember who you are and what you can do and what you have done and your sovereignty and your power and your steadfast love. And may we cry out to you again and again and again. And though you might seem to hide your face, though you might seem distant, though you might seem long, long away from us, though that time when we used to rejoice might seem so distant, may we continue to cry out. And as we cry out, may we continue to do good, not use our suffering as an excuse for sin. And may we faithfully endure to the end, dwelling in the land that you've given us, however imperfect it might be, being thankful, being content, and trusting and waiting. You are Yahweh. You are our sovereign God. You are Jesus. You are our saviour. And we can trust you. May we trust you, Lord, we pray. Amen.